bubonic plague in Europe circa 1346. From Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 1975, courtesy Trafalgar releasing. Bring out today! Here's one! Ninepence! I'm not dead! What? Nothing, here's your ninepence! I'm not dead! Here, he says he's not dead! Yes, he is! I'm not! He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. I don't want to go on the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. I can't. Well, can you hang around a couple of minutes? He won't be long. No, I've got to go to Robinson's. They've lost nine today. Well, when's your next run? Thursday. You think I'll go for a walk? You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look. Isn't there something you can do? I feel happy! I feel happy! Oh, oh thanks very much. Touch off. See you on Thursday. Right! True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal sheets. <laughs> Hello everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet, your source for exhaustive investigations into anything socially deviant, scientifically unexplainable, horrifically sinister, and if we get lucky, criminal. My name is Thad Helsley, and my co-hosts Cassie and Bernice are enjoying a well-earned spa week in an undisclosed location somewhere in Sedona, Arizona. But... I am not alone in this episode. We have a fantastic guest that I will introduce in a moment. Today, we are discussing epidemics and pandemics. We originally planned this episode as a survey of pandemic politics throughout history, with a focus on the associated lies and scandals that they inevitably spawned. Well, that modest aspiration (laughs) proved to be too big of a topic. For a single episode. So, we're breaking plague scandals down into a mini-series that we will offer to you intermittently. Today, we'll be discussing the so-called Spanish Flu of 1918-1919. It occurred only 100 years ago, and until COVID, this disease pandemic was the greatest human killer since the bubonic plague of the 1300s. Up to 50 million people died worldwide and almost 700,000 people in the United States alone. This is a great way to start our mini-series as this epidemic is similar in very startling ways to our current COVID pandemic. Now, to discuss this global outbreak and how it may have changed the course of human events across the planet, My guest today is Professor Vincent Conley, Ph.D., Program Lead at the Department of Psychology at Oxford Brookes University in the United Kingdom. Vince is also a colonel in the British Army Reserves. And if those aren't enough jobs for one person to have, he's also a recognized authority on the history of World War I, which overlaps the spread of this terrible flu outbreak throughout Europe and the Eastern Hemisphere. So, here is our very informative conversation. So, Vince, thanks for agreeing to spend uh, a little time with us today. You are an expert about the history of World War I. 
uh, as a born Scotsman currently residing and teaching in Oxford, England, you have an amazing grasp of the then-called Great War from the United Kingdom's point of view. And I understand as part of your military duties, you currently give curated tours of World War I battlefields for officers and uh, dignitaries from around Europe. Is that true? Yes, that is true, actually. Um, I do give the um, the occasional tour. Um, we, we call them battlefield studies in the UK for the for the um, for the military. Um, it began about 20 years ago now, um, taking people around. Um, and I've always had an interest in military history, um, hence also the um, the career in the Army Reserve. And so um, I think over the last 25 years, I think that's morphed into quite a deep obsession with the Great War and World War One, and I've amassed, um, you know, I'm just looking here at my book collection of over uh, probably 200 books on World War One um, that I've been um, spending too far too much money on uh, these last few years. <laughs> Vince, so just so you know, uh, we're we're in the middle of this episode where we're uh, talking about the. The politics of pandemic. So we start. We talked a little bit about um, what was then called the Spanish flu, which appears to have originated in um, rural Haskell County, Kansas, and then was quickly and invisibly transmitted to the occupants of a large nearby military base, Camp Funston. And this is, of course, during World War One, and that was just before all of its soldiers set out for European service. So it's like, boom, everybody's affected. Let's send them over to England. Okay. (laughs) Once those Americans arrived, the flu rapidly spread everywhere in Europe and became an unstoppable force. At least that's one of the historians we're leaning on is his lettuce in that uh, direction. Was, first of all, Tell me whether or not you agree with uh, that summation. And was the British leadership aware of the scale of this infection at the time, or did they downplay it as a variation on common trench fever? I would say they were very much aware of the influenza epidemic. Um, I don't don't think they downplayed it. Um, I just think they had an awful lot more other important things on their mind. Um, Health was very closely monitored in the British Army, uh, in World War One, um, primarily because one of the uh, greatest sources of loss of people in the army prior to World War One had been poor health and sickness. Um, so there was a great effort in World War One to um, bring along the medical services and public health services uh, into the army and really closely monitor and try and prevent poor health and sickness. Um, in order to keep the fighting strength of the army uh, as tip-top as possible. Um, And so there was a huge observation of health of soldiers in World War I compared to previous wars. Um, And this makes sense because, you know, you're living in trenches, you're living close to people, it's not very hygienic, Uh, there's a lot of potential for illness, a lot of potential um, for poor health. And so it makes sense to monitor it as closely as possible. Uh, and they've been doing this for four years, and they were pretty 
pretty good at it by 1918. Um, so they started noticing pretty quickly these influenza cases uh, that started building. Um, and actually, they, they took a number of measures that we'd recognize today. Um, so they instituted some forms of social distancing. Um, they encouraged troops not to mix overlay. Um, new units that came into uh, the reinforcement pools uh, were isolated for a few days so that people would um, get through their flu at that point. Um, and at that point, in the first wave of the influenza, um, the flu wasn't as serious as it developed in the autumn. Um, and people tended to recover uh, on the whole, uh, although mortality rates were a bit higher than they were expecting. Um, there wasn't that kind of um, urgency in terms of the social distancing that would be later. Um, but over and above this, it wasn't so much downplaying the epidemic. It was the fact that they were fighting a massive, massive war uh, at that point in time with six million British troops alone in um, in France. Um, fighting the Germans on a scale never seen before, uh, with thousands of battle casualties and thousands of sickness casualties every month, this was just something else um, to actually uh, take care of. And yes, it was there, but it wasn't top of their list in terms of concerns at that point. So was there a difference? You mentioned the first wave. The second wave was everyone agrees, much more virulent. So it's sort of like the Delta version, a variant of the COVID virus. Did did, did the response to that, uh, was it different than the first wave? So the second wave, yes. Um, certainly it was taken much more seriously because of the increased uh, mortality rates. Um, certainly while there were less numbers infected compared to the first wave, the number of deaths um, that followed certainly made them stand up and take notice. So they instituted even more rigorous social distancing measures, mask wearing in hospitals, um, public assemblies um, were kind of banned in some areas, um, et cetera, et cetera. So again, lots of the similar ways that um, we deal with pandemics uh, over the years uh, that we'd recognized. However, even at that point, with the much higher mortality rate, the war still came first. Um, and this was still uh, one cause of mortality amongst many others uh, that were going on the army at the time. Uh, so, for example, just before the second wave hit uh, the British army, um, at the very first end of the first week in October 1918, um, they had 35,000 battle casualties in that week and 11,000 sickness and poor health casualties. Wow. In the last week of October, and none of those were influenza, but in the last week oh. of October, when the influenza hit, um, they had 17,000 battle casualties and 15,000 sickness and health casualties, of which 7,000 were influenza. Hmm. So even in with 7,000 influenza cases, um, they were still at a similar level um, to what they would have in major conflict um, in the ups and downs as they went through the last six months of the war. In fact, the last six months of the war for the UK um, were, um, you know, some of the bloodiest and most casually inducing months of the, the whole conflict, in fact. Even, even worse in some weights than some of the 1916 and some of the 1917 battles. So, so that sort of in, eclipsed then the the effects of the influenza, in a sense. Yeah, sadly so. It was just one other way to die, sadly, um, or to be wounded or to end up in hospital. Uh, one of many. Uh, and in fact, you know, 
1418, um, there's no antibiotics, there's no steroids, there's very, you know, there's very little kind of what we call modern medicine. Um, so there was dysentery, diphtheria, enteric disease, venereal disease, trench foot, you name it, measles, mumps, malaria, rubella, and then influenza. There were sadly... <laughs> Just sadly, one more guy at the party, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> wow. And... Oh, yeah, I, I don't know if I emphasize this enough, but the military health services were at their most advanced at the time. In some way, um, in terms of military health services, it was almost a perfect time to have the pandemic. That's right. And also they were um, designed for surges. So they were, the military medical services were designed um, for a big battle to take place and a huge surge of people to come into the medical system. Yep. And in fact, um, they never ran out of beds. Even during the height of the pandemic, the British Army Medical Services um, were, never ran out of planned beds. Now, so they were fighting a world war, taking thousands of casualties, um, death and destruction everywhere, poor health and endemic, and then the influenza comes along, and they still didn't run out of beds. Amazing. Well, I, but you know, okay, so that's 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 a very refreshing uh, perspective in terms of from the standpoint of. Uh, being in the middle of it, but um, some historians that we have quoted have said that um, after Germany's agreement with Bolshevik Russia, the Treaty of, I know I'm going to ruin this, Brest-Litovics, um, that effectively closed the Eastern Front, allowing Germany to, and her allies to, you know, have, um, be in a much better position uh, against uh, the allies, and in, and it even if they had not won um, and just had pushed, you know, uh, allowed to the, the war to prolong itself, um, they would have been arguably in a, in a much better position when uh, the Treaty of Versailles uh, was eventually signed. But, but their lines were decimated, and that kind of like just really bad timing for them, right? So they closed the Eastern Front, and boom, now everybody's sick, and now we're going to lose. Is that... Is that true? <laughs> sort of. Sort okay. of. Uh, if you actually look at the timeline, so the main German offensive began at the end of March, um, and that's actually before um, the, inf the first wave of the influenza hit, um, which began hitting, particularly peaked with the German army in July. By then, um, their kind of offensive in March, April, had really run out of steam by that point. Um, this is 1918 we're talking 1918, about? 1918, yeah. Okay. And by, by July... While their offensive was still going on, um, it certainly wasn't um, to the same degree of danger uh, to the Allies that it had been uh, in March and April, particularly for the British, that is. Uh, and in fact, the British and the French beat off quite easily in retrospect the German offensives in, in June and July uh, as a consequence. So it may have been a factor. Uh, in terms of it's not you know not not the best preparation for an offensive to suddenly have lots of your troops getting influenza, but if you remember that first epidemic, um, most people were done um, in four to six days through the illness. Although it did leave a lot of people quite fatigued, which again isn't great if you're going into the front line. Um, but I'd say that first wave probably didn't have a huge impact on their offensive. One of the German commanders um, asked. Um, his army representatives before one of the July offensives if they wanted to postpone the offensive for any reason. And one of the commanders came back and said something about flu, uh, but they only put it off three days. 
um, the offensive because of that reason. Um, so again, you can see it's a consideration, but it's probably mm -hmm. not the consideration the Germans were worried about uh, in that regard. Um, probably more devastating was the autumn um, wave of influenza for the Germans. By that time, they're really up against the ropes. Um, the Allies are really pummeling them up and down the Western Front. And the Germans really have no answer to this tactical series of battles and the Allies pushing them back. Uh, they're outnumbered, they're outmaterialed, they're outfought, they're outgeneraled. Uh, they really are being pushed back at an incredible rate. Add on top of that their lack of manpower, their lack of materials, uh, their poor morale in the home base. And then, you know, being saddled with deadly flu is hardly uh, enticing to uh, rush yourself up to the front line. Right, right. Well, and... Um... Oh, and you did mention, I don't even know exactly when the uh, the U.S. effectively entered the war, but that must have been a factor as well, right? As soon as with all the men and material? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty bad for morale. Um, the uh, I would say the American army, you know, really got going in the summer of 1918, particularly with the French uh, in the um, in various battles around the um, Argonne, etc. Um, but it was a threat of the Americans and their massive material advantages and manpower advantages that forced the Germans to play the risky, um, in effect, that take the risk of the offensives in 1918 and their last roll of the dice before the Americans came in. And by doing so, they really wasted their cream of their manpower, forced on the defensive, and the Allies were able really to knock them, at, knock them for six. But, but make no mistake, the Germans didn't surrender because of the flu. The Germans okay. were defeated militarily by the Allied armies, um, thoroughly defeated by those armies. And the flu may have been a factor in the quick demise of the Germans, but the writing was well on the wall. Uh, they were done. They didn't surrender. They were defeated. And that's an important distinction um, you, you know, that, that people sometimes forget. So there was no way, even with the closing of the Eastern Front, there was no way they were going to win. Not really, not really. They may have delayed things. If they had a more successful spring offensive, then they may have delayed things in the end. Um, but the, the fact is, with poor planning and leadership, they didn't have a good spring offensive, um, and it all went wrong from there, essentially. The Allies were able to bounce back much more quickly. And in fact, the German offensive, um, in a way, brought the Allies together in a way that hadn't really worked before and allowed them to come up with a proper strategy to defeat the Germans in the West. By the summer, um, the Allies had also defeated all of Ger Germany's allies uh, in southern Europe, and the Germans were left alone. Um, so 1918 was a very bad year for the Germans. It might have started off uh, in terms of we can throw the dice and perhaps win this, but really uh, it was a throw of the dice. They needed to get that number seven, but the odds were stacked against them. Got it. So the other hypothesis that I had that follows maybe we want to throw it out the window, but it was, you know, one historian was, was suggesting that, you know, had Germany come out, you know, had there been no flu, had, you know, blah, 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 come out, if it had been closer to a draw than an outright surrender, you know, ergo, the Treaty of Versailles wouldn't have had it wouldn't have been so crippling with the reparations. And if you didn't have those terrible crippling reparations that, that led to that horrible depression in Germany, would there have been the Nazi party in World War II? 
Yeah, but I, well, absolutely. Yeah, those are those are inter interesting questions. Many people have posed uh, over the years uh, in terms of great what ifs. Um, I I think you know even if the Germans had had a better situation in 1918 than they ended up having, um, the Allies and in fact the political leadership of the Allies were quite prepared to take the war into 1919. And, um, you know, Lloyd George and the French were talking about taking the war into 1920 and beyond. Uh, they were not going to settle for the Germans occupying French soil. And the British were not going to accept. They'd come into the war because the Germans had invaded Belgium, uh, primarily. That was their primary reason for that. Um, and they weren't going to settle either until the Germans had gone back to the original frontiers. People seem to people often forget that um, the First World War was seen in, in quite black and white terms as Germany was the aggressor in terms of the perspective from France and Britain in particularly. Um, they'd invaded France, they'd invaded Belgium, and it was their duty. And the reason they'd gone into the war um, was to throw them out. And by 1918, the other factor that was keeping people going was they'd taken so many casualties, and this was such a horrendous war, to have ended it without victory just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't even on the table. Right. I gotcha. You had to, you had to bring it to a full closure. There was no way it was going to be a draw. No, no. It wasn't going to be uh, Afghanistan. Okay, we're <laughs> leaving. See ya. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Des despite the hopes, hopes of the Germans that something would be negotiated, it definitely wasn't. Um, even with Woodrow Wilson and his, and his various points, um, you know, the Treaty of Versailles, Yes, people have argued it was harsher than it needed to be. Um, but again, if you look at the war and its effects on, on the main um, incumbents, particularly in terms of Britain and, and um, the amount of money we spent, virtually bankrupted the country, um, a million, close to a million dead from the UK and the Commonwealth, and then France devastated, broke, and, uh, you know, and even more um, casualties in the UK. They were not in the mood to compromise. Uh, they wanted, quite literally, reparations. Mm -hmm. Well, and then there's the other factor that uh, Woodward Wilson comes in to, um, you know, tries to exert, you know, the U.S.'s role as, okay, we're going to make peace with everybody. But while he's doing that during the negotiation of the treaty, he contracts the virus. And it, it's really, really bad. You know, one of his biographers says he almost died. And they also think that even though he did recover, he was really never the same again. And when he eventually did die, running around the U.S. trying to sell the League of Nations, which obviously he failed at, even though it was his idea, supposedly, <laughs> it was because of that stupid flu. You know, and things would have been different if the U.S. had been in the League of Nations. I imagine that would have had an impact on, you know, what eventually happened. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in some ways, perhaps the biggest impact of the flu on World War One was Woodrow Wilson's illness uh, in terms of the final peace settlement. The, you know, the, the individual impact at that high political level may have had actually more of an impact than the many, tragically many thousands of deaths from flu in all of the armies um, at that time. Because as I said, there were lots of other ways, sadly, to die um, in the armies. Um, and the individual, uh, those individual deaths, while tragic and while contributing overall to victory, perhaps weren't as influential in the final few days and how the war would 
ultimately end in terms of the treaty and how the future will be laid out in terms of where Germany would go in the next 20 years um, because of Woodrow Wilson's illness. So perhaps that's where the epitome of where the flu had its um, it had its focus on World War One was on Woodrow Wilson. Your background as a uh, psychologist is probably useful here too. It seems one of the things, the themes that we're we're covering a number of different outbreaks, going back to the um, the Athens plague of uh, forty three BC. Um, which apparently, after its devastating effect, you know, had a dramatic effect on the outcome of the Peloponnesian War. So, it, but it's weird that you know, learned about all this stuff in school, at least someone of my of my age, about these various wars and conflicts. The disease was not really even mentioned. I mean, it was all you know about the military stuff, and and yet when you get down to it, you see the dramatic way. So, for example, uh, the American Revolution. Um, when you look at the British casualties, you know, they showed up with 55,000 people, 17,000 of them Hessian soldiers. Okay. More than half of the casualties that, um, that they received were, uh, through various kinds of illness, but especially smallpox. Smallpox was really, really deadly. And the one thing that, uh, Washington assisted upon was, even though it was very controversial, was inoculating his forces against smallpox, which some people died of that because it was a very, very crude thing. They would actually take some gunk and put it in your, you know, an open wound. But, um, you know, in, in, in a sense, especially since it was more, much more difficult for um, General Howe and then later Clinton to refresh their forces from across the ocean where Americans could just call up new people. I mean, they had three million people to pick from um, and they weren't losing their army to disease the way because I'm Howe didn't make that choice of, of inoculation. And they were, you know, particularly, you know, whatever variant was was dominant here in the North America, they were more vulnerable. There was no hereditary uh, or at least less, apparently, than there would have been had they been, you know, living here uh, their entire lives. Although there, obviously there was a lot of back and forth. But I mean, why do you think we don't want to attribute um, these things in any way to an to an outside force like that disease, which is a, just a a force of nature, like a hurricane or an earthquake that we have absolutely almost no control over, except for vaccines. But I mean, we'll get to COVID in a second. But uh, uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I do wonder if it's you know, as, as you you know, in terms of what you just said there, you I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of human agency. Um, it's good to imagine ourselves in terms of growing up to be a heroic general, uh, tales of daring do. It's not so glorious to be struck down by some flu and die in a tent um, of, of a fever. Um, so I do wonder if, if somehow, you know, our, our egos and how we represent ourselves tends to get in the way of what we concentrate on when we're reading about history, certainly, um, in that regard. Um, I also wonder if looking back pre 20th century anyway as you as you point out um and as we know poor health and illness and plague and all those kind of nasty ways to die um, were the predominant way that um most people did did die um not just in warfare but just in life itself and i think it was a rather matter of fact rather this is quite ordinary 
plagues, influenzas, illness, people get ill, people die, people die young, people die middle-aged, people die old of all of these varied diseases. Um, and it happens all the time. Um, and it's certainly worse in terms of military campaigns because with military campaigns and war tends to come starvation, privation, um, living in um, unsanitary quarters. So disease tends to be a lot more rampant than perhaps it might be in more typical life. But I think in you know pre-20th century for most of the world, and in fact still for lots of part of our world, life can be quite nasty, short and, and um, you know deadly um, in terms of exposure to illness um, without modern medicines. And so I wonder if when people are writing the histories of yesteryear and writing up their reports of battles, etc., the reason we don't talk about illness or they don't talk about illness is it's all around them for all of their life. It's it's one of those things that they, they have to deal with almost every day. And um, when it does have an impact on the military campaign, I think people do write about it, as you said, with some of the examples. But for most of the time, even when there's horrendous levels of sickness, it's it's just one of those things. And, and people get but, on with it. Uh, yeah. And it, but the, I see what you're saying, especially when you're talking about something as... Um, Long-term is like smallpox, which goes back at least 10,000 years, you know, to China. But and just keeps reoccurring, reoccurring, reoccurring. And it becomes a fact of life, like a hurricane that you just live with. But now, of course, we've eliminated smallpox. We've eliminated um, polio. We've eliminated you know, measles. So many different things that my parents, my grandparents lived in fear of. Although, like you said, you sort of just accept it. Look, it, the hurricane's going to come and then I'll deal with it when it happens. But we eradicated that, you know, where all this stuff that happened around the 70s or something. And then now switching to more modern times, now we've got COVID. And all of a sudden, the fear that other generations behind us constantly have is now on top of us but we're like completely unprepared for it It it's like okay yeah uh magic vaccine right uh well yeah it's gonna take about a couple years to really figure that out (laughs) and then now it's like well it's wearing off now we're gonna need to move it's like oh my god so i don't know and the the other thing was you actually were in um a trial weren't you an early trial for the vaccine yes an, an early vaccine trial yep um, it was it was very interesting actually to see modern medicine and and how they how they do their work. It's very rigorous, um, in fact, quite quite um, heartening actually, to see the the care that they that they took with each of us, and um, how we were able to be well informed about the design of the study, and actually um, all of those all of your kind of questions were taken care of. You've got a little hotline you can call. You've got a little app on your phone you can update. Um, you've got a number you can call twenty four seven if you're worried about health effects. Um, so it, it was it was really interesting actually, and and it felt good to be able to do a, a tiny thing to um, to advance science and perhaps help. Did you ever? Did they ever uh, tell you whether you actually received a vaccine or a placebo? Well, to begin with, we did we didn't know. It was a double blind right. study to begin with. Right, but. Right. When the other vaccines started coming out and people were being vaccinated in the UK, they didn't tell us to start with. So we were in a double blind study. But once other vaccines were out there, not the one we were actually in the trial for, and people were being vaccinated across the UK, 
what they did was invite us in for another series of injections. At that point, we didn't know which of those injections um, in terms of the ones we had just received or the ones we had previously received were the real vaccine. But we were told that one of the sets was the real vaccine. So they made sure somebody at some level beyond the double blind knew that Vince either got the real one the first time or, or not. Okay. Yeah. But you never right. knew. You just got both of them knowing with the assurance that at least one of them was real. That's right. So one, <laughs> okay. one set was real. Um, I, I probably ended up knowing which set was real, given I developed minor symptoms after the second set of injections. Oh, you did? Okay. Well, that, that would be a sure, yeah. Gave you a bit of a clue there. I get it. <laughs> so do you think, since we, you know, we talked a lot about the Spanish flu during World War I, do you think there are lessons there for us today, since we're still in the midst of this, you know, which is some people are calling this the fourth wave, and there might be another wave coming after this variant too. So are there lessons there for us? I think I think if you're looking at World War One and the British Army, um, there aren't a huge amount of lessons that we don't know already. But they they they're the ones that we've been rehearsing and and putting into practice the last year and a half, really. And that is monitoring your population and carefully um, analysing where the influenza, in that case, and this in our case, where COVID uh, is striking, using modern scientific methods um they they tried you know they were using their most modern methods in world war one to analyze cases and mortality we've been doing the same so again it's really following the science um and letting the scientists and medics do their work uh, essentially and having a good ratio of medical experts to the population always helps um the british army was very privileged in comparison to the rest of the UK, for example, in World War One, So the British Army had 12,500 um, medical officers for the 6 million soldiers. The uh, 46 million people in the UK had less medical staff. They had 11,400 oh, wow. medical officers for the rest of the population. For 45 million people? <laughs> yes. That's so, ridiculous. And that's why in the, um, in the UK you had 7,000 people a week dying at one point. Oh, um, they must have had more garbage men than they had doctors. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, the the um, but this also shows where the national effort was. So right. unlike the last few years, where our natural effort has been against COVID, their natural effort was fighting the war, and therefore all their medical resources. Um, in fact, more than half of their medic the nation's medical resources, in terms of doctors and medical staff, were involved in the war, um, and that was their priority. So. It's it's interesting when we talk about COVID ourselves as the biggest thing to happen in our lifetime. Um, that's certainly true, but it'll be interesting to see where history goes um, and how this pandemic is reported in the future. Um, I, th you know, I think if if we go back to our normal, typical lives pre-pandemic for the next few years, then this will certainly be the biggest story I think for a long time. But in the same way, World War One overtook the pandemic in 19, you know, 1918. If by some misfortune, um, World War Three broke out next week, um, or global warning suddenly kicked in and, um, you know, caused huge disasters across the world, maybe this pandemic wouldn't look so bad after all. Mm -hmm. 
it'll be the good old days compared yeah. to <laughs> compared to uh, England sinking into the sea under uh, uh, melting glaciers. That's right. But, <laughs> and then the historians of of um, tomorrow will have to decide what to write about. <laughs> right, right, right. So we also, I mean, this is just an aside that may not uh, have anything on it, but but since you are a, 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 an Englishman or a, a Scotsman, we, we covered earlier in the episode, we cover uh, the Black Plague of the 1300s um, and the, you know, and, and the impacts it had on, you know, then medieval society in terms of, you know, elevating, uh, you know, serfs and peasants into... Um, uh, stations of that they were not wouldn't otherwise have had any kind of political leverage, right? But but since almost half the population literally died, uh, affecting across the board everybody, you know, the poor and the rich. So it really did uh, have a dramatic effect. But I just thought, do you guys? I mean, today when if you live in the United Kingdom, do, do do you guys look back at those times and talk about them in schools and, and think about them in a certain way? Or, um, oh, which, do you have any perspective on that? I I think certainly when I was growing up in our history lessons, we did cover things like the Black Death, bubonic plague, the civil wars, and um, all the kind of varied diseases as well that went on. So the, there is um kind of awareness um. And and people children still sing nursery rhymes, ring a ring of roses. Right, right. Yep. I was um, going to say that. Yeah, we st- people still <laughs> sing that rhyme, and I yeah, and I didn't yeah. even know that 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 was about the Black Death until yep. a few years ago. Yep. So there's there's still a, a general awareness of the the lo- the large impact, and as you said, the the you know the freeing of the serfs and all the various economic um, changes that went on um, are still kind of. Um, known about and it's and it's interesting you know as covid begins to recede in the uk um we have a kind of covid impact on the economy in fact uh, as many countries do but one aspect of that is a shortage of um people for example um driving now that might be a a mixture of um, both covid and our wonderful brexit initiative uh-huh. Uh, over the last couple of years, you can tell which side I voted for. Yep. Um, but <laughs> I think the uh, confluence of the two in terms of the um, disruption to global supply networks combined with our lack of HGV drivers means that in this part of the economy, in fact, uh, the shortage has seen their wages rise uh, in double figures quite recently over the last couple of months. And suddenly they've, you know, got much better terms and conditions than they used to. Now that's definitely not, you know, the serfs being free and being able to take their ser- their their terms to the to the knights and the lords, but it's it's a, an interesting indication of the economic effects of of um, you know the pandemic on the country. Um, just a little microcosm, and I'm sure there are many others as well um, in terms of the backlog of our NHS here. Not just in terms of COVID, but all the other things that are going on, and the um, the impact on NHS staff and whether they're going to leave, um, etc. Their profession just because they're burnt out. So you'll start to see all these kind of impacts, I think, in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's very interesting. You're right. Uh, all these people who, especially in the hospitality industry, like restaurants and other service industries, who are making uh, federal minimum wage, seven twenty-five an hour. Now they're making fifteen dollars an hour. So, that officially got a hundred percent raise 
due to the the economic effects of uh, of COVID. So, yeah. I mean, there's winners and losers, even in something as horrible as this. There is, yeah. Every, yeah. every tragedy, sadly, you know, there 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 are people who come out slightly better, not mm-hmm. necessarily individually if they've had a tragic loss, obviously. But you're right in terms of just the impact, the wider impact on society. So thank you very much, Professor Vince Conley, for joining us today and, and offering your uh, insights on uh, on World War One and the pandemic. And uh, we just really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, great. <laughs> We're zipping up the body bag on this week's episode, folks. I want to give a very special thank you to our special guest, Professor Vince Conley, on enlightening us on the Spanish flu, World War I, and its many consequences. We hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform. And we'd love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you! So, you can reach us online at scandalsheetpod.com, Facebook or Twitter, or just send us an email to contact at scandalsheetpod.com. We'll see you next time on Scandal Sheets! Copyright 2021, Thad Helsley Media, all rights reserved.